There is a popular English proverb that says, cometh the hour, cometh the man. This proverb expresses the idea that the right leaders will come to the fore during times of crisis. Today, this proverb is indelibly linked to Winston Churchill and his leadership during World War II. For many leaders across the world, the hour has now come again, especially when one considers all that is going on in our world. The pandemic, social unrest, problems at the borders, just to name a few. There's no easy route through these crises. Besides the obvious problem of selecting the correct path to take, Leaders also face the monumental task of reassuring the public and persuading them to follow through on government decisions, even when measures may come at great personal cost. A wrong move could erode trust and unleash unrest that exacerbates the existing dangers and problems. But it remains to be seen whether our leaders, those who have great authority, will rise to the occasion with the appropriate responses. In the story we're going to read this morning, we will see a man who does rise to the occasion with an appropriate response in the midst of a looming crisis. But before he does so, he must first rise to a position of great authority so that he can provide relief to the masses in times of crisis and in times of adversity. If you recall, two weeks ago, Uh, We were looking at a passage in Genesis chapter 40. The man's name that we're going to be looking at is Joseph. And we we saw in his life how God was beginning to promote Joseph and what God does to promote his people. The very last point in that message was that God will promote his people according to his timetable and not ours. And we left this passage, left the story of Joseph while he was in prison because it wasn't time yet for God to elevate Joseph. In this chapter, we're going to see that now's the time. And it is two years later that God is now going to promote Joseph and cause him to rise to a position of great authority. That's what this whole chapter is about in Genesis chapter 41 to 57. Yes, all 57 verses are going to be looked at this morning. I've never given a message with 57 verses, but we're going to go through all of them, but I promise you we're not going to be here for two hours. So this raises the question. This passage raises the question. How does a person rise to a position of great authority for God? That's the question that needs to be asked when we enter into this chapter. First, a person who rises to a position of great authority for God will often begin their ascension because of an opportunity that presents itself to them. Verses 1 to 8. Then it came to pass, at the end of two full years, that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. 
Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second time. And suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Here you see that Pharaoh has a dream. And what's going on here with the cows and, 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 and the uh, stock of grain and the river referring to the Nile River? It was understood that kings, especially Egyptian pharaohs, stood very close to the divine realm. And so they're often credited with revelatory dreams in ancient oriental literature. The river is the Nile River. The fact that he's dreaming about cows and grain must be understood in the context that those were both staples in Egyptian agriculture. So it wouldn't be surprised that he's dreaming having such uh, objects in his dreams. But the point of the whole first eight verses is the fact that he can't understand his dreams. Now it's interesting to note that he was by the, considered by the people to be divine, pharaoh, but he doesn't have the ability to interpret his own dreams. What does that tell you about his divinity? So he goes to his magicians, but they're unable to interpret the dreams for him. So what does that mean? It means it provides an opportunity for Joseph to use his gifts to interpret the dream for Pharaoh. This is the very first step that causes Joseph to ascend to be prime minister in Egypt. It was because of an opportunity, favorable circumstances, that allowed Joseph to ascend. It had nothing to do with Joseph at all. It had to do with Joseph's God, who caused the Pharaoh to have his dreams at the time that he did, just like he caused the baker and the butler to have their dreams in prison on one night at the same time. This is God's doing. The reason why Joseph is going to ascend is because of an opportunity that presented itself. So anybody for God who ascends to a position of great authority does so not because of them, but because of favorable circumstances that God was working out on behalf of Joseph, which should cause all leaders, no matter where they ascend to, to be humble because their beginning had nothing to do with them at all. At all. That's how it starts. Secondly, those who rise to a position of great authority for God will acknowledge that their skills and abilities do not originate in them, but come from God. Verses 9 to 16. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, remember he was in prison, I remember my faults this day. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants, and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker. We each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant 
of the captain of the guard. And we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass just as he interpreted for us. So it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. Here, the point is, the, he's saying, the, 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 the butler is saying to Pharaoh, there's a guy I know who will be able to interpret your dream because he did that for us. And if you notice, the butler is speaking to the Pharaoh in the third person. He doesn't say, uh, you hanged me, you, you hanged the, you hanged the, the baker, Pharaoh, and you, and you gave me my, my position back. He's always speaking to the third person, it was, which was protocol. It was the appropriate thing to do. You never address Pharaoh second person, I, you. It's always third person. He refers to him as Pharaoh. Continuing in verse 14, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved and changed his clothing and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Here we see Joseph being very humble, understanding that the reason why he's going to ascend to his position is not because of himself and his own giftedness and abilities, it's because of God who has so equipped such an individual, which again is a constant reminder for all of God's people, uh, all of God's people, because all of God's people are equipped, all of God's people are gifted. He gives the Holy Spirit to his people, and the Spirit will equip the people according to his own will, for his own purposes, for the glory of God and for the good of his church. But Joseph understood that, and he said, it's not in me. It doesn't originate in me. And that should always be on the forefront of any person's mind, particularly leaders who may begin to think, I got here because of me and my own giftedness. My own. Well, the fact that we even use the term gift is an indication that someone gave it to us. It's not innate in us. God gives it to his people. And that's a very good reminder. Joseph understood that he was a gifted individual because of God. His ability to interpret, team, interpret dreams was not his own. It was given to him from his God. A person who rises to a position of great authority will make, uh, excuse me, will listen, will acknowledge that their skills and abilities do not originate in them but come from God. Leaders would be, all leaders would be wise to be mindful of that fact. Thirdly, those who rise to a position of great authority for God will listen to the concerns and problems of the people that they're being called to serve. Verses 17 to 24. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. And when they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. And so I awoke. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. 
And then behold, seven heads withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprang up after them, and the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, Joseph, uh, Pharaoh is now giving his own interpretation of his experience when he had a dream. And his emphasis is not on the seven good cows or the, or the seven full heads of grain. His focus is on the seven gaunt, thin, emaciated cows the, or the seven blighted, scorched heads of grain. That's where his emphasis is on. It's on the negative aspects, elements of his dream. And he shows that he's concerned about it. How do we know that? In order to see this, you have to compare what he's saying here with the first eight verses when the narrator gives the uh, account of Pharaoh's dream. When the narrator gives the account of the dream concerning the negative aspects of the dream, the narrator says concerning the cows that they were ugly and gaunt. When, Joseph, when the Pharaoh talks about his own dream, he says they were poor, very ugly and gaunt. And then he elaborates by saying, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. When they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. When, when the narrator talks about the seven heads of grain, he says that they were, they were thin and blighted. But when Pharaoh talks about it, he says they were withered, thin, and blighted. What's he doing? He is embellishing to make something more attractive by the addition of decorative details or features. He's concerned about his problem. He doesn't know what the dream means, and he's got a concern. And who's listening to his concern? Joseph. Joseph is listening to the concerns and the problems of the individual that he's being called to serve. And leaders who rise to, the, to a position of great authority will do that. Let me ask you this question. How many people, how many of those who have positions of authority today, whether they're in the political realm or in the church, are actually genuinely concerned about the problems of the people that they're being called to serve? It's a legitimate question today. Are they more concerned about their own position, their own agenda? Will they tell you things that they know you want? Will they, say, will, they, will they tell you only that which they know that the people that they're speaking to will want to hear? Joseph is going to assume a great position because he was willing to listen to the concerns and the problems of the people that he's being called to serve. Fourth, those who rise to a position of great authority for God will often make wise recommendations concerning future actions in the midst of a looming crisis. Verses 25 to 37. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. They have one meaning. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are 
seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. And this is what God is about to do, Pharaoh. This is what God is revealing to you. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following. For it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because this thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now therefore, because a famine is coming, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this, that is take action, and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming, and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh, and let them keep food in the cities." Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. Joseph saw a problem coming, and he made a wise suggestion to Pharaoh and, they, and, and to his servants, and they saw that the advice was good. And that was going to propel Joseph to a position of great authority. Those whom God will use and will rise to positions of great authority will see the future and be able to make wise decisions and make wise suggestions in the midst of a looming crisis. They're visionaries. They can see it because God gives them the vision to see it. That's what's happening here with Joseph. Fifthly, those who rise to a position of great authority for God are often appointed to such, a, to such a position by a person possessing greater authority than they do. Verses 38 to 40. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and as wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And here we see that Joseph is being appointed to a position by someone who has more authority than he does. And whenever someone is going to occupy a position of great authority for God, they will be appointed by someone who has more authority than they do. They don't just usurp it. This isn't someone who's seizing power on their own like you see in foreign governments or governments in our world who are trying to gain power for themselves. They don't, they'll just take it. They're not going to be appointed. But with God, it's different. God is going to be the one who appoints the person and he will use people or a person who has more authority than the person being appointed. That's what's happening here. Joseph is being appointed by a person who has more authority than he does. Sixthly, those who rise to a position of great authority for God are often installed with a formal ceremony that confers the authority and symbols of the position. Verses 41 to 43. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. We talked about the signet ring was an authority that the king had. He would often use it to uh, sign documents to make the documents official. He's passing that off to Joseph. Okay? Linen was a garment of court officials in Egypt. Chariots were the limousines of the day, if you will. The men going before him would be the equivalent of the secret service. Here we're seeing he's being installed with the position or with the symbols that signify his rank, his status, and his office. That's what's going on here. Uh, I remember when I was installed as a pastor here at Countryside Covenant Church. It, we had an installation service, you may recall. There were symbols that signified my position as pastor. Do you remember what some of those symbols were that were given to me by church leaders? Representatives of the congregation came forward, each holding a symbol of pastoral ministry, a Bible, a vessel of water, bread and wine, a book of worship, a vial of oil, and keys to the church. Those are symbols conveying the authority given to the person that God has appointed to serve. Same thing. That's what's going on in the text, although it's happening a thousand years before Jesus came in that culture, and that's how it was expressed. It's an installation. Seventh, those who are rise to a position of great authority for God are often confirmed or formally approved and invested with legal authority. Verses 44 and 45. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or his foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of the city of An. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. You say, what is going on here? He's given, Joseph is now, uh, he's been appointed, he's been installed, now he's being confirmed. It's becoming official. It's becoming legal. Well, how do you know that? Uh, in ancient times, when there was a marriage, it was often done to, to solidify and to formalize a treaty between powerful people. If you ever, how many have ever seen the movie Braveheart? It's one of my favorite movies. If you recall at the beginning of the movie, there's a marriage. Cornwallis was the king of England. That's who William Wallace was fighting against, right? Because they were oppressing his people. Cornwallis was the king of England, and at the beginning of the movie, towards the, at the early part of the movie, there's a wedding scene, and he, uh, the Cornwallis, the king of England, had arranged a marriage with the king of France, and Cornwallis, the king of England, his son was marrying the king of France's daughter, and they were doing it because they were solidifying a treaty that they had made to consolidate power. So Joseph here is now being confirmed in his power by marrying someone who is an Egyptian. And this was not just any woman. She was the daughter of the high priest or a priest in the city of An. 
and An was a major center of sun worship. So Joseph here is getting a new name, and he's getting a new wife. But the act of marriage here is, is, is making official his position. That's what's going on here. Okay? So what we are seeing here in these, uh, between verses 38 to 45, is that he's being appointed, he's being installed, and he's being confirmed. We see that today. When we look at the Supreme Court, when they nominate a Supreme Court justice, how does that process happen? They're first appointed by a president who has more authority than they do, <laughs> right? And then they go through a Senate hearing, and that's a confirmation process, and then they're installed. You're seeing the same elements here with Joseph because he is going to ascend to a position of great authority for God. Now, we're going to see what happens once he occupies the position. Those who rise to a position of great authority for God have the responsibility of carrying out or putting into effect their own advice once they're in office. Verses 46 to 49. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That is when he entered the service of Pharaoh. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. That is literally by the handfuls. And so he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. So Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. I want you to notice the focus of what the author has done. He's putting the focus on Joseph's action. For up until this point, Joseph has been doing talking. That's all he's been doing. But now he's been, he's been appointed. He's been installed. Now he's been confirmed. What's he going to do? That's the question. What's he going to do? Not say. And so what does he do? He gathers up all the food. He lays up the food. He laid up in every city the food. And Joseph gathered very much grain. He's become a man of action. Joseph is following his own advice. He was saying something before he got into the position, and now he's following through on what he said. How many people today are promising the people all kinds of things, and then when they get into the position, they do nothing? Or at the very least, they don't say what, they're, they, don't say what they did. They don't do what they say they're going to do. Joseph was a man who carried out what he said he was going to do. Yeah, today they can blame all kinds of bureaucracy for that. But if you can't, make, if you can't fulfill your promise, don't promise the people something you can't follow through on. You don't do it. Don't, don't, you don't get the people's hopes up by telling them something that they want when you know and that you won't be able to follow through with it. Joseph here made, made suggestions, and then when he got into office, he followed through with it. Secondly, those who rise to a position of great authority for God have the responsibility of not being influenced by the ungodly culture in which they serve. Verses 50 and 52. And Joseph... And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God had made me forget all my toil in all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Isn't that interesting? 
Joseph has been given an Egyptian name. Now he's been given an Egyptian wife. It's very easy to see how he could be assimilated by the Egyptian culture in which he's now serving. But if you notice carefully, we know that he's not being absorbed by the Egyptian culture. How do we know that? Because he has two children, Manasseh and Ephraim. Both of those names are Hebrew names, are not Egyptian. Joseph's mother, Rachel, and Leah, Jacob's other wife, they were the ones who named their children. So you would expect when, J- when Joseph gets married to this Egyptian woman, you would expect her to name the children and they would probably be Egyptian. But Joseph says, no. I may be in Egypt, but I'm not going to have that. I'm not going to be influenced by the Egyptian culture. We who are believers live in the world. But those who are leaders, even Christians who may not see themselves as leaders, must not be influenced by the world in which they serve. Thirdly, Those who rise to a position of great authority for God have the responsibility of providing relief to the masses in times of crisis and adversity, verses 53 to 57. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, the famine was in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to that is, and they made an appeal to relief in the midst of adversity. They appealed, they cried out to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe. That is, the famine grew worse in the land of Egypt. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. That's the reason why the Lord had promoted Joseph to a position of great authority was so that he could have the responsibility of providing relief to the masses in times of crisis. That's the whole point of the chapter God was sovereignly working events so that all people would go to Joseph in a time of crisis so that they would find grain that would sustain them in the midst of the crisis. Keep this in mind. Egypt is often used as a metaphor for the world. As Pharaoh at that time told the Egyptians to go to Joseph in the midst of a nationwide, worldwide crisis, so God the Father is now saying to the people of the world, go to Jesus in the midst of the nationwide, worldwide crisis. And as all the people of the world found grain to sustain them when they went to Joseph in the midst of a crisis, so now all the people of the world will find bread to sustain them when they go to Jesus in the midst of the crisis, for Jesus alone is the bread of life. The bread of life is offered and disseminated in his churches who function like storehouses in Egypt when Joseph opened them up. Countryside Covenant Church, among all the churches in the country, throughout all the world, should be places that are storehouses where people who are hungry and in need for comfort, love, and grace can come and find the one who has authority in heaven and on earth. And God will orchestrate in his divine providence all the things that happen in this world to get people and to push people and direct them to the one who's been placed in a position of authority where they can find bread. Sustenance for life. 
And that's what this church is here for. It's to feed, provide comfort, grace, support, love in God's name and the person of Jesus Christ expressed through his people as they sacrifice themselves like their master to serve the people that he has made in his image. And it's with this thought in mind that we come to the table, the place where Jesus spent shortly before he was going to the cross. He shared a meal, a meal with his disciples, his first followers. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When supper had ended, he also took the cup and he blessed it. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for all men and women, so that your sins may be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The bread that we break, is this not a participation in the body of Christ? The cup that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters in the Lord, these are the gifts of God for you and me, the people of God. Let us partake of them together, being mindful of what God has done for you and for me in giving us life through his son. I'm going to pass out the elements. I will ask that you please hold on to them so that we can partake together. body of Christ, which is broken for you and for me, let us partake together. The blood of Christ that has been shed for you and me at the cross, let us drink together. Would you please pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for the fact that you offered yourself as a sacrifice on that cross. You are the bread of life. It is your broken body and your shed blood that will sustain us and strengthen us as one body united in your son, Jesus. The unity that exists within the Trinity, may that be true as well in your body here on this earth. May your spirit be at work in each and every single one of us so that we may become a fountain of life-giving water to those around us. We're so thankful for who you are. 
And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to reveal yourself to us, that we would be drawn nearer to you, that we would be holy just as you are holy. For you alone are God, and we love you, and we give you the praise that you alone deserve. Thank you for this meal, and thank you for this day. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Let us continue our worship this morning by singing the wonderful cross. Would you please stand if you are able? seems odd to have wonderful and cross in the same phrase. In the first century, the cross was not seemed wonderful. It was a demonstration of contempt, shame, dishonor. We call it wonderful, which tells us that God's ways are radically different from the world's ways of seeing things. Isn't that true? For my ways are not your ways. Nor are my thoughts your thoughts, says the Lord. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. There may be something going on in your life that doesn't make sense, but the God who died on the cross knows and understands and will supply you with the bread that will be necessary to sustain, to be, to sustain yourself in the midst of it all. The cross, the wonderful cross. Meditate on that this week. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace as you meditate on the wonderful cross. Go in peace. Amen.